0: If you have a Bible, I would invite you to open to the book of Romans, or maybe you brought your Roman scripture journal. Um, I keep putting out the last few ones that we have in the back. And so if you are new or never got a Romans journal, you can grab that. What it is it's got the Bible on one side, and then it's got a blank page for notes for you throughout the week to read ahead, to ask questions, to draw lines, and do things. I suppose so. Yes. So there, whatever's left, you can take. Yes. Um, so do that. And uh, yes, use that. Um, but anyway, we want you to have that or you have your Bible. We want you to follow along. And we are making our way now, not quickly, uh, but we are making our way through the book of Romans. And um, we will get to chapter two in a moment, but I want to rewind. We have to do this. We have to keep the big picture in mind. The apostle Paul Never had been to Rome when he wrote this. He wanted to go to Rome um, and was looking forward to going to Rome. He says in the introduction that he had heard of their faith uh, and, and he longed to go to bless them, to be blessed by them, but he had things to say. And this letter in particular, you heard me say maybe when we started our series, it's, it's considered by pastors who, who preach it as like the Mount Everest of, of books, of letters, because there's so much to it. It gets into some difficult things. And 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 the Apostle Paul is, is truly building an argument towards some things. But as you see on the screen, there's an introduction with his greeting, with his thanksgiving. And then in yellow there, the theme of the letter, which is the gospel. And so here are the two verses. You can look at them on the screen or in your book. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel again means what? Good news, not good advice, good news. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There's this priority. We'll hear it in our passage today Jew first, then Gentile. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. So, in this gospel, this good news, which is news about especially, specifically, what God has done in the person and work of Jesus, especially that, although, yes, there's ripple effects outward, but that is condensed form, the the heart of it. In that announcement of what happened, God's righteousness can be received, not earned. Not paid for, not sought, but, but simply received by grace. This righteousness that reflects who God is, and it's what he gives. And, and as we saw last week, um, everyone is unrighteous. Again, they, it's a Bible word. It's like sin. So, so unrighteous, not righteous. God is righteous. And, and we sin, which means we do wrong things. And because of our sin, we, we fall short. We miss the mark. Verses that, We'll get to in Romans, and, and we can only become righteous if God works externally to impute that righteousness to us, which is the righteousness of His Son. And that's what Paul is going to argue, and he's going to argue toward, and, and we're going to see when we get to chapter 3, verse 21, uh, more of that. But in the middle of that, going back to our outline, let me move past this for a moment. Or maybe I'm going the wrong way. Yeah, there we go. That'll be fine for today. Number two, there's this universal need for this righteousness. I mean, it's universal. Um, It's not just what we saw last week, uh, those Gentiles, those crazy unrighteous sinners, right? And and if you were with us, I mean, you, you might remember. I mean, Paul had a lot to say. Beginning at verse 18, where he started to speak about the wrath of God as being revealed we're going to hear in our text today that there is a future day of wrath. God, in judgment, deals with sin. But but even now, his wrath is being revealed as, as people. And again, in his argument, the first big bullet there under two, he, he talks about Gentiles, the Gentile world. Um, even though he hadn't been to Rome, he, he had been elsewhere. He had been to Uh, Corinth and Ephesus and Athens and he'd seen things and 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 he just knew. And and the Jews in Paul's day and they were you know pretty self-righteous, maybe. We'll see that maybe today. And they looked out at the way everyone else lived, and and it was very much against the way God said. Because these Gentiles, they suppress the truth, they they know God exists, there's evidence for God, but but if, if that's true, then that means maybe God has a claim on how I live, so We'll suppress it and push it down and, and exchange the truth of God for lies and for idols. And so Paul talked about idolatry, and we pointed out, we, we in our day may not make little statues or big statues and, and bow to them, although people do that still in places. But especially for us, uh, idolatry is more an issue of the heart. And so I quoted the Reformers who said, the heart is this idol factory. We're always putting something ahead of God and, and looking to something else to be a functional savior ahead of God. And so we too can suppress the truth and, and, and believe in lies. And, and, and what we saw last week is that this idolatry that continues on, it, it leads to some gross, heinous, outrageous sins, a lot of sexual sin, uh, but a lot of other things, Chapter One ended with a list of twenty one things, gossip and malice and bragging and deceit and strife and murder, foolishness, faithless I mean on it goes so but it's all it all flows out of idolatry, it all flows out of not keeping commandments one and two, not keep not worshiping the Lord our God only and and not you know letting him stay first, but but again, idols come into play. So that's been Paul's argument, but now, the yellow, as you see on the screen, Paul is going to talk to the Jews. He's he's kind of pointed out the Gentile world, right? And, and again, even that is under the heading of universal. Like, this is everybody. But but kind of in highlighting Gentiles now, he's going to turn the corner and and highlight how the Jews are sinners as well. And here's what I'm calling our message this morning. The problem of the moralistic and religious. Because here's what's interesting, and we'll see this in a moment. The Apostle Paul, in his time, writing this this letter to the Christians in Rome, was thinking of Gentiles in 118 to the end of chapter 1, and now he's going to clearly start to highlight Jews um, as well. But it's still universal. It's still applicable. So even if this morning you... Don't do not have Jewish blood in you. <laughs> this is still a word of God to you, for you. Um, and, and what some scholars note is that, really, even though he's highlighting what the Jews are doing, we can kind of come up the ladder of, of abstraction, if you will, um, to say this kind of touches on like a moralism, a a, a self righteous religious moralism, and so that's the problem as we dive into. Chapter 2 now, verses 1 through 11 today. I'll read the whole section, and then we'll comment on it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So right away, Paul begins here in chapter two, and it's going to go into chapter three. Uh, and again, he'll keep every now and then like making those universal comments like he did here. You heard it. Everyone, right? He's, he's talking to the Jews pretty clearly, but he'll make sure everyone's included. Um, but, but as he now drills in to highlight the sin of the Jews... Uh, how they do the same things as the Gentiles. They, they, they are unrighteous, is his point. And so he's brought this charge against the Gentiles for their sinfulness, right, in rejecting God's revelation. Now he turns to show that the Jews, they have also turned from God and from his revelation. The Gentiles had a general revelation. They know God exists in some form, but they suppress it. But the Jews, and, and we don't get to the Specifics in our text for today. He he'll highlight the law. He'll highlight even circumcision. How God specifically, specially gave the Jews, God's people, truth, and 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 they have fallen short. They they are unrighteous, and just because they are part of the chosen people, that does not automatically make them righteous. The Jews who had heard Paul. Probably were sitting there, yep, yep, those Gentiles, yep, sinners and all that. And they would have been nodding in agreement in chapter 1. Now Paul starts to say, hey, look, you are unrighteous as well. And what Paul does, again, is make an accusation. Just like he made an accusation to the Gentile world, he's going to make quite an accusation to the Jews. And and what he's going to do, what I did for us in reading uh, 1 through 11, there's there's two parts to it. 1 to 5. Paul's going to make the point that the Jews do those same things that the Gentiles do and therefore are guilty of God's just wrath. And then after that accusation, in verses 6 through 11, he's going to explain and elaborate out what he means. And here's what he does. He, he Again, as I mentioned, I think, one sermon as well, um, Paul's brilliant as an as arguer. Um, and so he shifts from speaking of they... That's what he did in chapter 1, this third person plural, they, the Gentiles. And he moves, if you have heard it, to speak of you, second person singular. Uh, why is that important? Well, if he was just talking to like all y'all, right, second person plural, he could have done a plural, but he starts to employ a technique. He's using an ancient literary style, a diatribe. And he's creating this fictional character. You heard me say it, I think, twice. Oh man, oh man, you, second person singular. He's not, he doesn't have a specific person in mind. He doesn't have some, you know, person in Rome that he's heard about and he's talking to. It's a fictional character and he communicates that way by, again, changing from they, third plural, to you, second singular. It's this fictitious makeup person, um, this diatribe in which he has this fictional dialogue between this this man, this person, so that he can do some instruction and, again, persuade on his argument. Again, uh, a moralistic, self-righteous, religious person, to be sure, but but specifically he He wants to point out that, listen, fellow Jews, because he was Jewish, um, we are guilty as well. So listen again now to Romans two verses one and two. therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge. Practice the very same things. And again, remember, those same things were illicit, immoral, sexual relationships and things. And then that list of 21 items at the end. He says, you you who sit self-righteously and judge, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, You practice those very same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. His audience would have to be saying, well, I don't like this, but yeah, you're right. We do know that. Those who practice those things, yeah, they're going to be judged. And Paul's calling them out. You are self-righteous and you think, well, the Gentiles, but you do those things. What an indictment. And it just, you know, we have to pause and think of the words of Jesus who taught, you've heard it said, right? He talked to a crowd at the Sermon on the Mount. You, you heard it said, don't murder. and anyway, That's a good thing. You know? Murder is bad. But I tell you, if you have hatred and evil thoughts, you're guilty of murder. So it's not just the person that can say, well, I've never actually taken a life. But when we have that stuff inside, we're we're guilty. Paul's echoing those kinds of thoughts. Both in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, you could write down Jeremiah chapter 7. But also in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 3, the Bible condemns the tendency of God's people, the Jews, to think that just because they have a special relationship that they'll be protected from judgment. So let me read Matthew 3, 7 through 10. So this is the context of John the Baptist. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We'll pause. John's baptism wasn't the same as the baptism Jesus commanded. This was a baptism of repentance. It was him as the forerunner, making way, making straight the, the path for the Lord Jesus. And he was calling his people to come and get baptized just as a sign of repentance, as a sign of saying, I, I'm turning back to you, God. We're ready for the Messiah. And, and so Pharisees and Sadducees were coming and, and John calls them out. It says, if this is genuine, then show the fruit, bear the fruit in keeping with your baptism. And listen to what he says, verse 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The point of quoting John for you, for me, for a moment is, again, them presuming on this relationship. Well, we're the children of Abraham. And John was saying, no, no, bear fruit. Show it. There's got to have been a change. And so, again, Jeremiah chapter 7 and then John there in Matthew 3, again, make this point that the Jews can't just rely on the fact that they are the covenant people now that Messiah has come, especially, specifically. And then verses 3 and 4, now back to Romans, Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions that are meant to convict. And so just, just hear. Hear the Spirit, I hope, and pray. Even for us, raising a convicting question. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance I I don't know what it was like when this letter arrived in, in Rome you know what it looked like for them to first gather and open it and read it and then you know copy it along and whatever but but I think Paul wanted like the mic to drop right there verse 5 but because of your hard heart, your your hard and impenitent, non-repentant, unrepentant heart. Because you have a hard heart, you're not repentant, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we have to just pause and say, look, we may not be relying on our Jewish heritage in the room, most of us, many of us. But are we relying on being church people, being Americans, being raised at camp, VBS, whatever? So Paul's brought a formal accusation. Oh man, you who judged, yet you practice and, and you think you're going to, because of your connection, escape the wrath to come? So now, beginning of verse 6, he moves on to start to explain and elaborate, elaborate this accusation he's just brought. And we're only looking uh, at, at the first part. Uh, again, he's going to get to some other things and we'll get there. But 6 through 11 now, his explanation and elaboration of this, this charge that he has just brought. So before we we look at 6 through 11, a couple of things we we need to note. First, this is so cool, Paul is thinking probably of Psalm 62 as he begins to open uh, his his elaboration here. Um, Psalm 62 is a psalm of David. Psalm 62 uh, begins like this. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. For him... From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And, and it'll go on. But Paul's going to quote verse 12 of Psalm 62 here in a moment. And there's an allusion even to Proverbs twenty-four twelve. Again, Paul knows his Bible and he knows his audience. He's writing to a church in Rome made up of Jew and Gentile. And now as he's addressing the Jews in particular, oh man, you who are self-righteous, you who judge but you commit, he, he starts to elaborate on his charge by quoting something they would have known. They, many of them would have known there in, in that context. Psalm Back to Psalm 62 for a moment. Um, in this psalm, um, David is going to speak how God will give to each person according to what he has done. Keep that in mind. So um, what have people done in that psalm? Well, again, David writes um, in this psalm, he contrasts two people. We're not going to read the whole psalm. You can write 62 down and look it up later. But two groups are going to be talked about. There's those who plot against God's chosen king, who was David, who lie and who say one thing and, and uh, do the opposite in their hearts. Kind of like the group of people here Paul is talking about in Romans 2. The other group in Psalm 62, like the verse I just read, verse 1, they are going to find their rest in God alone. Hear it again. David says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. So there's those that that say those things, including David David. And what have they done is they found rest and salvation from God. He's the one at the center. He's the one that will reward each person according to what he has done. Verse 12, and we'll hear it again in Romans. Because here's what's going to happen. A little spoiler. Um, You're going to hear me read these verses again, and it's going to sound like Paul has just forgotten everything about the gospel. It's gonna sound like he's forgotten everything about righteousness being outside and needing to be received because he's gonna talk about people working and doing and God rewarding based on what they do. And our, if, we're, if we've got our gospel antennas up, we're gonna be like, wait, wait, Paul, does that contradict what you just said? But Paul's too smart. He didn't forget what he just said. He's, he's pulling from Psalm 62. And in that context, it, it makes beautiful sense. And as we'll see, there, there is a further point to what it means to do some good works. Okay, so we'll get there. But again, first thing to note, he's pulling from Psalm 62. The second thing we need to note um, is that um, Paul, not only is he employing this diatribe style of argument where he has this fictitious um, discussion, but he also uses a writing technique called a chiasm. And, And we've talked about that here and there Look at the screen, but let me warn you, this is risky at 11.05, okay? Uh, yes, that is very true. So, um, a friend of mine made this slide years ago. He actually was the one to share it with our church years ago, and I've stolen it, um, but he's let me. Um, a chiasm, as you're looking at that and thinking about lunch, it is a literary feature um, that intentionally communicates with some symmetry, okay? Um, kind of like how a good burger. And I do. I need to talk to my friend Joe because there's a there's a piece of cheese missing in this photo to really make it fit. But just as there's symmetry, right, with bun and bun, and then vegetable and vegetable, and then in the middle is the main event. The in this case, the cheeseburger. Or since we're having crackers and cheese, I made my own special thing here. It's going to be hard to see if you're in the back, but there's cracker and cracker. There's Swiss cheese and Swiss cheese, because I love Swiss cheese. And there's a piece of salami, the main event there in the middle. I will wait to eat it. Until after, But you see the symmetry, okay, that, that happens. And so uh, Paul uses this literary feature. He probably wasn't thinking food, but this just helps us visualize it. Um, it's a chiasm, which again um, comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X to us, so it's confusing. But just as the X kind of comes to a middle and then right, goes back out, that, that's what Paul does in these verses. There's gonna be this symmetry. He's gonna say something, it's like the A, and then he'll say something else, and it's like B, and then something else, C, and then he says that same thing again, C, and so that's the middle, and then he back out, backs out of the argument, B prime, and then A prime, and so there's, there's a symmetry, and I'll talk us through it. But the point is, the chiasm is intended to explain the previous sentence. Verses one to five, this argument, this charge, this this now chiasm that he does here is meant to explain to illustrate to magnify what he has done so let's look at it a little closer so verse 5 i'm sorry verse verse 6 he will render to each one according to his works jump down to verse 11 God judges impartially, right? He doesn't show favoritism. So there's, there's an A and an A prime. There, it essentially says the same thing. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, God shows no partiality. Look at verse 7. To those who practice, I'm sorry, who by patience, In well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. Jump to verse 10. Here the B and the B prime. But glory and honor and peace. So he changes it from glory, honor, immortality. Now he says glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Right? Okay. And Now look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then verse 9 restates that. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's this chiastic argument He said it, he says another thing, and then he gets to the middle, and then he restates and moves back outward. Now, what of this claim, again, that it sure sounds like he's saying, so we get eternal life by doing good? This is not the first time he's going to say things that sound that way. Um, We'll hear it in, it's there in chapter 10, or verse 10. We will hear it in verse 13. We'll hear it later in the chapter as well. But what, what, what he's doing, again, he hasn't forgotten what he's written, okay? Or what he's going to write. Um, what, what he's explaining, again, and this is where we got to keep Psalm 62 in mind. Um, the doing or the works that he's saying need to be present here are works and doings that, that show the, the necessity and the evidence of the faith that, and, and the transforming work of the Spirit, so again, he's not arguing that you, you do in order to get. It's if, if you've been made righteous, if you are a righteous person, if you've received the effects of the gospel, then yes, you will do. And by doing your, your fruit actually is what's showing that your roots go to the gospel. What he is saying is that works matter. How we live matters. It's not the basis for salvation, but it's the evidence that saving faith is there, again, in Psalm 62, where Paul's pulling from, what matters is a person's relationship to God, right? That's how David starts that psalm. In God I trust, in God is my salvation, God is my refuge, God is my rock. And then uh, verse 9 and 10, as the psalm suggests, again, if we were there, there will be, it'll be shown in how there's this life lived. What they do, good works show that we have saving faith. Good works show that we have saving faith. They do not add to our faith in saving us. I like how J.D. uh, Greer, or, or sorry, this is Tim Keller, how he illustrates it this way as well. Here's another way to put it. The apples on an apple tree prove life, but they don't provide it. Apples are the evidence that the apple tree is alive. But the roots are what pull in the nourishment to keep it that way. And in the same way, faith in Christ alone provides new life, right? He gives righteousness. It's received to anyone who believes. But a changed life of righteousness is what proves we have real faith. And I tell you, as a youth pastor for many, many years, and even still as a pastor, I talk with people and there's just always this discussion because we look at people's lives and not in a judging way, but we care about people. And there's people we know that at one point professed faith. They said they believed and even maybe gave some evidence. But but now over time, they, they've done a 180. They live differently. What does that mean? Did they lose their salvation? Was God not faithful? And, and what the scriptures teach is that no, the the saints will persevere. Christians will remain. There will be trials and ups and downs, and we all have seasons of doubt and sin. But but over one's life, we we will make it because God won't let any of us go. Jesus said, "I won't let any go that the Father has given me." That's an amazing promise out of John six. But people again give evidence, and maybe they're in a season of sin. People give evidence, and even Jesus taught that, that that seed falls, and there's shallow soil in some cases. And again, it's not ours to play duck, duck, goose, or you know, save, save, not save. You know, we need to pray for the people we love and care about, who we we wonder about. Um, but over the course of a life, the evidence will be there if genuine saving faith of righteousness imputed has happened there will be fruit. Just like on that imaginary apple tree, the apples are not the source of life. They, they don't provide the life, but, but they give evidence that that tree is alive. Well, Let's drill down just for a couple of moments on some of the things that he says here. So, indicators that there's been a change of heart, that there's been a righteousness uh, happened from outside. Um, we could see in, in verse seven, in fact, two tests. So listen to verse seven again. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. In other words, um, living in a godly way, L- like living, like that, that's a test to, to consider if saving faith has happened, if regeneration has happened, um, living in a godly way. Is, is one test and then and then the other there is seeking glory, honor, and, and immortality again qualities that come from life with God life with God the the person who who has this right relationship with God wants these things again wired in this such in, in such a way um, to, not that those goals are wrong, but again, what is the ultimate End. And if it's if it's God, the Creator, if, if in Him we seek these things, right? They give an evidence, and, and that's why He restates that, although slightly differently, in verse ten: glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. Again, doing good because it's the fruit of what has happened. Like this is a telltale indicator. But then we can also note some indicators that a person is not right with God. There's this self-seeking. There's, again, rejection of the truth. And I hope you heard that. Again, that should have taken us back into chapter 1. Just as in chapter 1, the Gentiles suppress the truth. Well, even the Jews, even the religious, the moral. Right there in verse 8. Not only are they self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So, again, if... if. All a person does is look for their own interests and just continually lives a sinful life, continually lives a sinful life. Not every once in a while sins and then repents, but a pattern that that's a telltale sign that maybe there's not saving faith. And so again, he goes on and he speaks of this, this precedence of the Jew first and then the Gentile. Again, it's a theme we've heard. We'll continue to hear it. Again, God's people, the Jews, there's a privilege. Jesus, the promised one, is the the Jewish Messiah. God's people received the word of God, the the Ten Commandments, the law, all of it. There's this privilege. But again, that privilege alone doesn't save, but but there is a, a precedence. The Jew first, then the Gentile. The Jew first, then the Greek. Because God shows no favoritism. So Paul makes his indictment, his accusation, and he does this chiastic thing to highlight, you're guilty. If if your life doesn't show that you've been saved, if your works don't match what should have happened, then there's an indication in, in your life that wrath will come on you. So works matter, not to save, but as evidence. So they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, I don't know what they say about a story, but we'll have to settle for a story and not another picture. Here in Romans 1 and 2, and especially now in 2, we've, we've got this contrast, right? Romans 1, the unrighteous sinner. And then in Romans 2, uh, the moralistic, self-righteous, religious person. And Paul says, you're both unrighteous you 're both lost you 're both in need of god 's grace, the gospel his righteousness, and a story that illustrates these truths come from the mouth of Jesus, and you know the parable, the parable of the two sons, the prodigal son we often call it, and Luke fifteen right Jesus gives this story to make the point that yeah, there's irreligious, unrighteous, sinful living. The, the younger son in the story who, who says, Dad, I'm out. I want my inheritance. I want to go live my life. And, and he does, and he squanders it in all kinds of ways. Meanwhile, there's this dutiful, older son who stays home, never does anything wrong. But as the story goes on, Jesus makes the point that, that there's a heart problem there. And, and really... He's he's highlighting this because again, his audience, the Pharisees, they they would have been so proud of their external living and, and not aware of what's inside. So Jesus tells the story of a son who lives one way and then this older brother in his story who's obedient, he's compliant. But the point again of the story is that they're both lost. What they need is the kindness of the father. And it's a great story. If it's been a while since you've read Luke 15, that's your lunchtime reading. The father who runs when he sees the son, the son who had gone away and then came to his senses and thought, well, I'll come back and I'll just serve. And, you know, but when the father sees that son, he runs to him which was scandalous in the culture for a father to act this way. The kindness of the father to the brother who remained home. Again, he he speaks truth to him, but he he doesn't tell him to get out for his self-righteousness. There's a kindness. So Jesus tells a story. The Apostle Paul gives these arguments. Whether you live unrighteously, sinfully, indulging in every known evil, or if you think, well, I'm religious, I'm moral, I'm you know, I'm better than, you're lost, you're lost, you're lost. Both kinds of living need the kindness of the Father, because again, the theme of Romans, the unrighteousness of everyone. So what we're seeing here in Romans two is, is what the gospel does. It flips moralism here on its head and religiosity on its head. So let me read this in conclusion from J.D. Greer. Rather than saying, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And that produces a whole different kind of obedience, an obedience motivated not by the need to be saved, but by gratefulness that we have been saved. And then J.D. quotes a summary of Tim Keller writing on Romans 2. Any religion that does not begin with a deep experience of God's grace in the cross is going to leave you smug, overly sensitive, judgmental, hypocritical, and insecure. Far from curing the problem, religion, moralism, without the gospel makes us worse. Being religious and moral do not help us with our sin problem. Remember last week, the problem we're all stuck with, the biggest problem, it's, it's our sin. It's our unrighteousness. We, we, we don't live the way if we know what God wants, that God should. And even if we don't necessarily believe in what God says, if we're just honest, if people out there were honest, people don't live the way they think they should live. They, they fall short of their own standards, whatever that may be. Being religious, being moral doesn't help. Being unrighteous obviously doesn't help. We need... The gospel. So look back at verse 4, especially the second half of that verse. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. In, in the context there, Paul's saying his, his day of wrath is coming, but it's a kindness that it hasn't come yet. Don't you know that his kindness in waiting is meant to lead you to repentance? I love how the New Living Translation says it. His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. God's kindness in enabling us to experience his goodness, to hear his word, to understand our need for mercy is meant again and again and again to lead us to repentance, to turn back to him, to come back to him. To acknowledge we haven't lived up to his holiness and we can't. He doesn't call us to be religious or moral, but repentant, to return to him as the center of our lives and hopes, relying on his kindness. Would you stand and pray with me? And then we're going to sing, we were joking as a worship team, um, an old Chris Tomlin song. It's like 23 years old. And it's one we've never done here, and you may not know it, but it comes from this verse in Romans 4. And let's make that our our prayer together. So join me, stand, and let's sing. Father, thank you for your kindness, your kindness in in delaying your return, and your judging wrath because of your holiness. We thank you for your kindness in revealing the gospel to us in the Lord Jesus who has come in the flesh, who lived the life we can't live, the Lord Jesus who died in our place to, to take your wrath and, and, and provide forgiveness. We thank you for your kindness. May we be a people who again and again repent and come back to you and don't seek to live righteously and religiously and morally in order to earn from you, but because of what you've done because we've been transformed and changed and adopted and made righteous through Christ, we want to obey. We, we pray. We want that. We ask that together in Jesus' name.